Uh, can you remain standing for the reading of God's Word? Uh, we're going to pick it up in Mark chapter 15, verse 40 to 47. And God's Word says this, There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was a day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning and a privilege to come and worship you. I pray, Father, that our worship is a fragrant aroma to you, that you have been pleased thus far with the praise of song and lyrics. We pray that you have been pleased with the tithes and offerings, symbol of what you have given to us. We pray, Father, for now that you would be pleased with our worship in the Word. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, July and August usually is a, a time for traveling. Isn't that right? Maybe some of you have traveled just to Oahu for a weekend getaway or to Maui or to one of the other islands, or you've gone to the mainland and, uh, you know, because it's the last gasp of summer, the kids are going to be starting school. And I myself, my wife is still in California. I was just there two weeks ago, and then we're flying out to the east coast of the mainland in about 10 days. And, you know, since my father was in the Navy, I went to three different high schools. Can you believe it? <laughs> it was fun, though. I, I really enjoyed that life. And uh, I was sharing with somebody just a few days ago um, because they asked, you know, why are you going to the East Coast for? I go, well, you know, because of the uh, three different high schools, the high school I went to back there is having, listen to this, a 45th high school reunion. Can you believe it? I can't even believe it. <laughs> and uh, I also mentioned, I go, you know, what's so fun about these reunions, especially as we all get older, because, you know, for the most part, 45th High School reunion, you're 63 years older, thereabouts, which is me. <laughs> and I said, you know, if you really want to have a good time and have a good laugh, watch a bunch of 63-year-olds get on the dance floor and watch them dance. Have you ever watched an ugly dance contest? Well, that's me. <laughs> but before we travel, uh, we make sure that we take care of all the 
responsibilities, especially paying bills. You know, your electric bill, your uh, cell phone bill, uh, whatever bills come up, that is a very important part of how we live is that we you know, pay the bills and we pay it right away. Um, and uh, one of the big ones is that my wife has to pay for her health insurance. So, uh, and it's pretty huge. So we usually will go to the HMSA office right there on Henry Street, Street to, to pay her bill. And as she was writing out a check, I was kind of leaning on the counter and I looked over and there was a sign called the Hillbilly Medical Terms. I don't know if you've ever seen it before, but there is such a thing, a hillbilly medical terms list. And I'm not sure if this is true. Somebody told me that, oh, that's what they use for an oral exam for the hillbillies trying to get into the hillbilly medical school. And some of them are really, really funny. But here's just four of them that I saw. So just picture somebody sitting there uh, asking questions to uh, somebody that that's, wants to get into Hillbilly Medical School. And they ask, okay, do you know what a tumor is? Oh, yeah. That's when you got more than one. You got two more. <laughs> okay, well, do you know what a vein is? That means conceited. Like my cousin Vinny, he's vain. <laughs> it gets better. Okay, do you know what benign means? Well, yeah. Benign is after you be eight. <laughs> How about barium? Do you know what barium means? Well, yeah, that's what you do when somebody done died. You bury them. I mean, some of you doctors or anybody in the medical field would probably like this, ter these, this terminology. But if you didn't know what a barium was, it's a barium swallows where you drink a chalky substance and they can take an x-ray and um, see what's inside of the uh, gastrointestinal tract. So that's what a barium is. So if you laughed at that last part, now you know what a barium is. But we come to this part in Scripture about the burial of Jesus. And if you've been in church any length of time, when was the last time you heard a message exclusively on the death of Jesus? Probably not too often. Because the focus really is on the crucifixion, and it goes straight to the resurrection, and it's like nothing happened in between. And of course, when, when Jesus died, in the hillbilly term, we, we bury him. And that is what we're going to study today. And to me, the mark of a true disciple is one whose life has been transformed, where their character manifests what's happened on the inside. That there's that inward transformation. And when that happens, it shows forth in your character. And so when you read the first two verses in this text, you see an example of what discipleship looks like. Let's read it one more time. It says, There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and, of, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And so uh, you read about these women, and 
you probably, like me, didn't think much about women disciples, but you know, Scripture tells us we know that they existed and we know that they are important and vital to Jesus' ministry. Whatever it was they did, they probably prepared meals for him, bought you know, whatever they needed for the meals, maybe cleaned up, but they followed him. And they followed him ever since the beginning of his earthly ministry, which was in Galilee. And what's really important here is not so much who they were by name, but it's what they did. And here they were, they were uh, disciples of Jesus Christ, and they followed him wherever he went. I mean, this is a, uh, you're talking three years plus, because that's when Jesus started his ministry, three and a half years prior, and they followed him. And now here are the women, they're faced with the death of Jesus, but even that didn't deter them or hinder them from following or serving Jesus. And it's by their presence they served as eyewitnesses to Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection, which, by the way, verifies the foundation of the gospel. And what I mean by that is when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, write this down because it's really, really important, or you can turn there. This is what Paul says. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So these were women who were there the entire time. Do you remember where the other disciples went? They, they took off. They scattered. But here are the women disciples that were there for the crucifixion, the burial, and they will be there for the resurrection. And a word about discipleship. You know, uh, the unfortunate thing is oftentimes is we'll come to church, listen to a message, uh, go hang out with, you know, our clique or posse and go out the rest of the week and live life the way we want to. But that is not the life of a disciple because it says in Mark 8.34, for anyone who comes after me, they must deny themselves pick up the cross and follow me. So what does it mean by denying oneself? It means to deny the natural inclination of how we want to live life the way we want to live it. That's a tough one because what we will do is protect at all costs the ultimate decisions about our life. That's totally against what discipleship is. How about uh, dying to oneself? That is uh, dying to our own agenda because God has so much more for us and we think that we can live life the way we want to and what happens? It, it's, it's less than what God desires for, for our lives. But these were women who learned to follow Jesus because they uh, denied they, themselves, they picked up the cross and followed him. And now you get to the portion of scripture here and it really introduces us to somebody rather abruptly and that's Joseph of Arimathea. Keep in mind, these women were totally sold out on Jesus. And now you're going to learn a little something about Joseph of Arimathea. This guy's a, a pretty much of a bigwig. He was part of the Sanhedrin. So let me go ahead and read that again up to um, 
probably verse 44. It says, And when evening had come, since it was a day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus Christ. And as I said before, you don't hear of Joseph of Arimathea, you know, when you read the Gospel of Mark. But this account is mentioned in all four Gospels. It's really, really important because we learn about uh, Joseph in all those four Gospels. But it also talks about the day of preparation. And I love it when Mark gives a commentary on what he just stated. This is the day of preparation that is the day before the Sabbath. So what that meant was uh, all the, the Jewish people had to, first of all, um, buy enough uh, food supplies to have meals for the day of preparation and for Sabbath. And they were to prepare all that because it was a day of rest. It meant feeding the animals enough uh, feed for you know, the day of preparation and the Sabbath because no work was supposed to be done. That also meant, uh, in Joseph's case, he wanted to bury Joseph, uh, Jesus um, within the two hours that he probably had. Remember, this is Good Friday. And so uh, the day of preparation is a really important piece of this because Jesus was in a hurry. I mean, excuse me, Joseph was in a hurry to get Jesus' body off that cross. But who is Joseph? Who is he in the first place? Well, here it, it talks about he's a respected member of the council who is also seeking for the kingdom of God. In Luke, he says, Luke says he's a good and righteous man and that he did not consent to the council's decision and actions in uh, regards to Jesus. So he, he's a good guy. But what's most telling about the character of Joseph, and, un, and unfortunately, I think we all can identify. You'll find it in uh, John 19, 38. It says that he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews. And that's really important as we go on with the message. And it says also that he took courage and went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. You know, why would he want to, you know, work up all this courage to see Pilate to get Jesus' body? There's a number of reasons. Uh, one could have been because he knew Pilate didn't like the Sanhedrin. Pilate didn't want Jesus uh, put to death. Pilate was manipulated by the Sanhedrin because Pilate wanted to let Jesus go. But he was manipulated by this group of religious leaders of which Joseph of Arimathea was a part of. And he could have been thinking, you know, he doesn't want to see anybody that has to do with, with the Sanhedrin. How about the, another reason that uh, could have happened? See, asking for Jesus' body was against protocol, Roman protocol. And, of course, Jesus was put to death and crucified by the Roman authority, of course, by the demand of the Jewish religious leaders. And 
when I say that it's against protocol, the Romans' standard practice for somebody who was crucified, they would leave him up on the cross until he decayed, or that the body would decay, or the skin and everything else would, was eaten by wild animals. It's pretty brutal, but that's really the standard procedure of the, the Romans. Plus that when I said that uh, it was against protocol, their legal code, the Romans, was to give the body over only to close relatives or close friends. And of course, uh, Joseph was not one of those. But of course, um, that's what he's going to do. But the third reason, which I believe is a real reason why he had to work up the courage to go to Pilate, was the reality that uh, when he did this, he would no longer be able to remain a hidden or secret disciple of Jesus. Performing this act exposes his faith fully for everybody to see. And really, what would this mean? What would this do to affect his life? If you're to look at John uh, chapter 12, verses 42 and 43, there were other religious leaders who are believers in Jesus Christ. But if you're to read that, it'll say they also believed in Jesus Christ, but for fear of the Jews or being thrown out of the synagogue, they remained secret. It also says that for they love the glory of man rather than the glory of God. So how would this affect Joseph? Actually quite a bit. You know, he could have been shunned by his peers, losing his position with Sanhedrin. It would be a loss of prestige, power, income from the status of being on the council. He would have been ostracized by the unbelieving Jews who were thought to be friends. Now think about that yourself. What if you were, you know, at work, not at a Christian school or not at church, but let's say a secular business. Wouldn't it be easy to kind of hide that faith from coworkers or customers? I know I, my wife and I were in business for 30 years, but um, uh, it was really hard to, to hide our faith because the name of our store was Sunlight Surf Shop, S-O-N-L-I-G-H-T. But... Um, even uh, through the years of surfing, it's been almost 50 years since I've been surfing, but uh, even in the lineup, I would hide my faith because that way I could give stink eye to the guy that dropped in on me or I could yell at somebody for, for paddling out to the peak that I had to myself. Or on these surf trips, nobody knew me and I could, I could be hidden and secret about my faith. I think all of us have some of that inner working in our lives, unfortunately. Unless you're like the women in the first few verses who are totally sold out. Verse 44, it says that Pilate was surprised. You know, Pilate was surprised because the normal time frame for somebody to die on the cross by crucifixion was about three days. Jesus died in six hours. So he's re really surprised that Jesus had died so so soon or so quickly. And 
what he did was he summoned the centurion that was in charge of crucifixion. They were called the exactor mortis, which is Latin for the executioner in charge of, of death. And one thing about people in charge of crucifixion, they know death when they see it. It's their job. It's their profession, and they're really good at it. So when they put somebody to death, they knew. So what's so important about that? What's so important is that one of the uh, longest-running heresies uh, against the resurrection of Christ is that Jesus really didn't die on the cross. That when they pulled him down uh, and they laid him in the tomb, he revived in there, pushed away a two-ton cylindrical stone and walked out. Yeah, right. And you're gonna, later on you're going to uh, see what I'm talking about, that you know, they're propagators of, of fake news. So when he got the word from the centurion that, yeah, Jesus is dead, he, quote, granted the body to, to Joseph. And what's so highly unusual about that is that you would think that great care would be taken uh, for anybody to confiscate or to prevent the confiscation of, of a body, especially Jesus, because Jesus said that I'm going to put to death and in three days rise. And so certainly you want to keep your eye on that, but um, he didn't. You know, God had other plans. Turn with me, if you will, if you have your Bibles or your iPhone or, or uh, iPad, to Matthew 27, 62 to 64. And what it says is the next, uh, I'm sorry, it's, uh, 62 to 64, right? The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than a first. That's where you get fake news from. That's where it started. And the reason why um, it's important to see this particular passage in relation to the burial, uh, first of all, you read in verse 62, the next day, that is the day after preparation. Mark even mentioned the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath. So the day of preparation was before the Sabbath. Here it says, the next day, that is the day um, after, the, after the day of preparation. So it's the Sabbath day. On the Sabbath day, you are not supposed to work. Work was considered walking from home to any place else. That's a Jewish man-made law. Uh, it also meant politicking and uh, associating or even being in, you know, just a conversation with a Gentile. <laughs> Here they were on the Sabbath day. They walked to see Pilate, a Gentile, and having conversation. And 
propagating fake news. Because, you know, uh, they wanted to make sure that uh, the disciples didn't steal the body. In terms of how criminal remains were to be handled, the burial of Jesus conformed neither to Roman law nor Jewish custom. Uh, you know, I, uh, sorry, I, I just thought that it, it you know, the uh, gathering of, of Jesus' corp, corpse was, uh, didn't go with Roman law nor Jewish custom, but it was in accordance with God's plan and purpose. And here's what I mean by that. You would think that Pilate granted the corpse to Joseph because he was the sole absolute power of uh, the area and that he alone could do that. And how about Joseph? Um, just because of his desire to give Jesus a proper burial, that he operated on his own and wanted to honor him, honor Jesus by just doing whatever he could. In fact, you read in the other accounts that uh, the tomb actually belonged to Joseph and he was going to offer that to, to Jesus' uh, burial. And how about the soldiers who, by standard operating procedure, would walk to the other two that died on the cross and they would break their legs just to expedite the death because, as you've heard before, Usually, crucifixion is death by asphyxiation because of how they did it. But they came upon Jesus, seeing that he was dead, didn't break his legs. And it's really important to know that. And the reason why it's important to know what I had just talked about, about Pilate thinking that he was the absolute power to uh, make a decision to give the, or grant the body to Joseph uh, and Joseph thinking that he was operating on his own and the soldiers didn't break the, uh, Jesus' legs was all coincidental and it's not because all that transpires in the Bible are orchestrated by an eternal sovereign God who knows the end from the beginning and makes all come to pass it's Isaiah 46.10. It's a really good verse to, uh, to underline because he knows exactly what goes on in our lives and certainly knows what's going on here. You see, even in death and burial in Christ, the sepulcher speaks. I know maybe you haven't heard of sepulcher before, but really it's the tomb that Jesus was laid in. You know what? You know, I, I want to us to really be aware of of God's prophecies, because when there's a prop, prophecy foretold, there's going to be a prophecy fulfilled. Did you know that there are 332 distinct prophecies about Jesus Christ, His life, death, and resurrection? What are the chances of one person? fulfilling those 332 prophecies uh, in his life, uh, death, and resurrection, you know, the 33 years. It, the number is way too huge for you to even comprehend, but I'll give it to you. 
the chances of Jesus fulfilling all these prophecies himself is one in 840, if you want to write this down, 840, and then add 32 sets of zeros behind that. Now, um, you could venture to guess how to say that. I, the only way I know this is because I talked to a NASA scientist. You know, he's a friend of mine that I went to church with. I go, how do you say this word? He goes, well, it's 1.84 octogoogles. You can share that at lunch this afternoon. But only if, if we take eight of those 332 fulfilled prophecies it would look very much like, and I'm talking, I'm trying to put something tangible in this whole idea of prophecy fulfilled because this is what the sepulcher is doing. He, it's telling us that God is in control and that he's sovereign. But you take uh, eight of those prophecies that were being fulfilled, what it's like is that if you were to go to Texas and build a two-foot fence all the way around Texas, Texas is huge. You can take the big island, 67 times and place it in Texas. So what you would do just to get an understanding of just eight prophecies that Jesus fulfilled is fill up the entire state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars, take one, paint it red, and, and put it in there, have somebody walk from anywhere, any border, blindfolded, stop anywhere he wants, on the first try, pick it up, and there you go. It's, it's impossible. It's like the California lottery. It's impossible. And so what I'm trying to get at is Scripture, Jesus, his death and resurrection are for real and it applies to all of us. And, you know, there are people that say, hey, man, don't confuse me with the facts. I've already made up my mind. And here, this is what ha it's happening. And what I'm trying to get to is uh, 700 years before this occurred, the prophet Isaiah through the Holy Spirit prophesied that Jesus would be buried with the rich, not with the criminals. 700 years before. And how about Jesus' legs? Um, you know, they didn't break the legs, because it was prophesied in Psalm 34:20 that none of his bones would be broken. Verse 46 um, continues with Joseph and the help of Nicodemus. Do you remember Nicodemus? John chapter three, when Jesus was trying to tell him he must be born again, he shows up again for the burial of Jesus Christ. He and, and Joseph got together, Nicodemus bringing 75 pounds of a mixture of aloe and myrrh. And that's a pretty huge amount. Um, usually, it took 20 pounds to, you know, uh, to wrap somebody in, in linen and, and the use of the mixture. But they used 75 pounds for, for Jesus. A lot of people say, oh, it's it's... Uh, enough for a king certainly is an extravagant amount, but do you want to know why they they use that much? Because they didn't want 
their their Lord to to smell from the decay of his flesh. That's what the uh, mixture was used for, because you know they didn't want the smell of corruption, uh, the body decay, to be so obvious. <laughs> um, that wasn't going to happen either, because in Psalm sixteen ten, it says. Jesus, the Holy One, will not see corruption. They, they didn't know that, but, but God did. He's telling us this through Jesus' burial. And it finishes off with um, verse 47. It says here, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. It starts off with the women, this, this text, and ends with them. And, you know, here they were. They're observing what Joseph and Nicodemus were doing. And all they can do is, is think about what had just happened. The crucifixion and now the burial. They're observing and they had in mind really to come back because it says that they, they went to, they're going to go back to get ointment themselves and come back the day after the Sabbath on that glorious morning called the resurrection. But, the, but God placed them exactly where they're supposed to be as eyewitnesses to where the tomb was to dispel another heresy that the disciples went to the wrong tomb. Of course, yeah, the Jews' body's in there because the disciples went to the wrong tomb. No, because the women were there. They're there to see where it was because they're going to come back and they also they needed to know where it was. Um, they didn't need to know, but, but we needed to know that Jesus placed them through his you know, divinity and his foreknowledge of what was going to happen because they had to tell the disciples the following morning where the tomb is located. And by the way, this is for next week. Um, I think Pastor Travis will be speaking on the resurrection. But the women, um, they were the first eyewitness to the risen Lord. And I find that absolutely incredible because the women's status back in the day really meant nothing. Um, even their witness was inadmissible in the court of law. But their witness and the resurrection is recorded in God's word for all eternity. That's, that's pretty heavy stuff. But as I looked at this passage, you know, meditated and dwelled on it, thought about it even more. I couldn't help but think that the women were totally sold out and were true disciples of Jesus. And I, I'm certain the reason why is wherever Jesus went, whatever culture he enters in, he elevates the status of women. He loved loves them, he cherishes them, he values them. And I can tell you that I went to 
back in 1980, I was a young second lieutenant. I was deployed to Saudi Arabia. And um, I was there to do some cross-training with flight crews um, from Dahran, Saudi Arabia, because I, I was at Jubail. So it was a probably a two-hour ride. We got to Dahran, me and my crew, and I was just standing there uh, because we had to get to the U.S. Air Force headquarters that was stationed, or at least stationed temporarily at a hotel. And I asked one guy, I go, where is the U.S. Air Force headquarters? And he goes, go to your mama. <laughs> what? Your mama, go to your mama. <laughs> I got my Bruce Lee stance. I go, yeah. And then one of the guys on the cruise says, hey, Lieutenant, I, I, we got a ride to the hotel. Sure enough, we got to the hotel. And you know what the name of the hotel was? Yo Mama. <laughs> and, but uh, when we uh, had some uh, time off, it's either we're going to the airfield. I believe we're going to the airfield. We had to take the public transit system as a bus. And I looked around, and there were some women there with their headdresses, and, and they had their faces covered. And uh, I got, okay, big deal. And I got on the bus, and I'm looking, and I look at the back of the bus, and it was caged off. I go, well, maybe that's where they put the goats and the chickens and everything else. And uh, as we got going on the bus, I looked, and you know where that, that caged-off area I was talking about? That's where the women sat down. I go, Wow. If, if uh, the problem was that, that Christ wasn't there. And whenever Christ comes into a culture or a relationship, for women, women are elevated. And that's how it should be. When it comes to Joseph, I'm sure that all the deception, viciousness of the Sanhedrin was intolerable to him. Yes, he was a secret disciple, but for some reason he had changed and he no longer wanted to be bound by the status of the temp temporal because he finally grasped the concept of the eternal. He knew something was going to happen. You know, the Bible really doesn't exalt uh, hidden Christians or hidden believers. I mean, you can read all throughout the Gospels that says, hey, you know, we're supposed to uh, display our light for all to see. But for some reason, in this case, God used Nicodemus for a particular reason, for God's purpose and plan. And to me, it shows that Jesus' touch can reach even into the hidden recesses of an individual's heart to make a difference for him. And I'm telling you that God loves us too much for us to remain hidden or secret in our faith. So what he does, he places his unmistakable handiwork of circumstances in our lives to draw us out from the comfort zone of complacency. That's what he does when, when things happen in life. Lastly, many of us deal with sin that we've carry, carried around for years, maybe even decades, and we still operate and walk in shame because of those sins. What the burial of Jesus should tell us is that he died for those sins once and for all. And in the tomb is where those sins will remain dead and buried 
forever. And for the believer, when you realize that, when you understand grace and mercy that God has given us, we can live in obedience to him. And for the non-believer who's still searching, he saw the hopelessness in your eyes that he chose to die on the cross for his sins. And when he uh, died on the cross, he buried the sins so they, they will never come back. And with that, he de- declared his victory over sin and death. O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, grave, where is your victory? For the believer is non-existent. For the unbeliever, consider what the sepulcher tells you today, that you may believe in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. Such a hard subject even to to preach, but Father, you have a purpose for it. I pray that as the burial scene and the sepulcher is evident to us, that it challenges us that it convicts us for the purpose of changing us to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that we can live lives that are worthy in a manner of which we have been called. We've been called to be sons of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.